Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the new Mainstream Podcast, where we explore the impact of multicultural consumers on marketing and media. I'm your host, Mario Carrasco, and co-founder of ThinkNow. It's excited to introduce our guest today, Maria Marukian, CEO of MSM Global Consulting. Welcome, Maria. Thank you, Mario. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. And I didn't even ask you if I pronounced your name correctly. Hopefully, did I get your last name? You, you did. You did. Yes, absolutely. Although I'm guessing probably living in Los Angeles, you have access to a lot of folks from the Armenian diaspora. So, Yes. <laughs> yes. So we're, we, we, we know how to pronounce the last names. <laughs> right. Um, awesome. Well, excited to have you on. Um before we dive in and learn more about uh, what MSM Consulting does and talk a little bit about DEI, we'd love to learn more about your founder journey. I had a chance to look over your LinkedIn and you've worked government, nonprofits prior to being a founder. Um, fascinating background. Would love to learn more how you how you came to found MSM. Sure. I started my career uh, in the nonprofit world and uh, spent a number of years working for a small organization called the National Multicultural Institute. We did a lot of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, intercultural competence work with mostly other nonprofits, uh, sort service-oriented organizations, um, education, nonprofit, healthcare. And uh, that was really where I sort of got my start in facilitating uh, DEI, you know, trainings and dialogues, but also in terms of starting to approach this from an organizational development lens, which I think was really profound because one, working for such a small organization, I had an opportunity very early in my career to wear a lot of hats, uh, be stretched more than I ever would have had the opportunity to, to do if I were in a larger organization. And, um, and to have access to people who truly just cared so much about this work and um, brought a lot of passion and uh, an expertise that they were willing to share with me. So that was an incredible experience and I think really set me on my career path. Um, after five years uh, there, I wanted to try my hand at working in a larger institution and joined the federal government. So I was working for the Department of State for a number of years. At the, Fed, um, at the Foreign Service Institute. And that in and of itself was a whole different journey in terms of being a part of such a large uh, global organization, uh, being able to focus on leadership development, uh, team dynamics and DEI, but through that global lens, um, and to be inside an organization trying to enact change from the inside rather than being sort of an external consultant or educator. Um, and so those were two very different uh, organizational experiences, both of which gave me such a unique opportunity, I think, to learn and grow. Uh, then I joined the corporate sector for a short bit of time and worked for a training and consulting firm. And, uh, and then finally, decided, you know, if, okay, I've ticked all the boxes. Uh, and now I really want to, I want to try this on my own. I think the impetus for me was I wanted to be in a space where I could really be 
doing the work in a way that I felt was in alignment with my personal and professional values and goals and to take what I had learned from working within and across these various organizations and kind of apply it, but in the way that I felt would really help to foster sustainable change. So I founded MSM Global back in 2016. <laughs> Is that right? 2014. Oh my gosh. Yes. Almost 10 years. Uh, and I haven't looked back. It's been an incredible journey. That's amazing. And I think, um, one of the reasons I was like impressed by your background, I, I, I feel like it's pretty rare for someone to have, for a founder to come from like nonprofit, government, like how did that, I, although you did have the the, the, the um, private side expertise, but like, I'm just curious, how did like the nonprofit government aspect help with like you wanting to take the leap or, or how you built or thought about MSM? consulting? Yeah, I think that part of what I have always sought in the organizations that I've joined, um, and sometimes part of the reason why I have chosen to move on is uh, because I think I do tend to uh, sort of aspire to that entrepreneurial mindset. Um, I tend to always be looking for new and creative ways to be doing the work and achieving the mission. Um, I don't like stagnation. <laughs> I, get, I get really irritated when people tell me that's the way things have always been done. I'm like, that's that's the death knell I'm out. Um, <laughs> but I think it was uh, it was really informative coming from, uh, you know, again, being in the nonprofit world, uh, being in government, um, I think, and always feeling as though I was a bit of an observer that I was bringing a, in some ways, more of a, a corporate mindset to those organizations and my backgrounds in organizational behavior and organizational dynamics. So I think, you know, I was sort of looking at things always from that systems lens. Um, but I also think that it has shaped the, the clients that I tend to gravitate toward, even within my own um, organization and the clients who tend to gravitate toward us, the vast majority of our client partners are they're either government or nonprofits, uh, they're educational institutions, associations. We really don't work with a ton of larger corporate entities. We've done some work with them, but I think we tend to just connect more with those sort of mission-driven, service-oriented organizations. So even though I'm now wearing this more of a you know, corporate fun founder hat, I think I still tend to resonate most with those organizations that have very public-oriented visions and missions. That's great. Um, so I, I think that's a great segue into MSM Global Consulting. It sounds like you you figured out your passion and what you what type of organizations you like to work in tell us about the seed idea of msn global Cons consulting and now it's been a while like you said almost 10 years when what how what have you evolved to so i think part of the evolution was when i first started i was primarily it was just me and i was primarily focusing on uh training and facilitation 
some strategic planning, but it was a, a lot of it was sort of general leadership development training, DEI training. And although I love that work, it wasn't where I wanted my organization to to really be, you know, focusing. I really wanted to be swimming in a pond where I could be partnering with organizations to do more holistic work. And so as time went on, uh, I started uh, really sort of funneling my focus toward organizations that were uh, expressing a commitment to lasting culture transformation rather than just coming in, flying in and doing like a one-off training, which was what always bothered me about the work that I was doing internally in some of my previous organizations. Um, not that we would say no to that, but increasingly we were saying, if you want to do this work right, we need to go beyond just the one-off everybody's biased training because we know it doesn't work. And I mean, I'll take your money, but it's really, it's not going to be any good for you or me. Um, and so I think that one of the things that uh, has been foundational in in MSM Global's growth has been an increased, even before the summer of 2020, I think an increased uh, sense of dissatisfaction with the way that we as a society are having conversations around identity, around inclusion, around um, creating an equitable and just society for everyone. Um, I think people increasingly have become so burnt out of the social polarization and the, uh, the way that these concepts are being used and misused to sort of tear us apart that a lot of the, the, the work and I think the impetus for the work in the last few years that I've seen has come from leaders saying, we need to do something about this. Um, and we know that people are bringing this in with them into their organizations, whether we're talking about it or not. So let's talk about it. Um, and then, of course, the summer of 2020 and, uh, you know, the, the brutal murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others, the pandemic, <laughs> you know, just a, a wide a wide swath of, of sort of conflict and issues that brought all of this to the surface really, I think, further incentivized a lot of organizational leaders to take this seriously. And so I think that's been part of our growth and evolution over the last few years is to be able to uh, to say we, we have an approach and, and this works and it's based on not just theory, but research and practice. And it's not your average you know, again, come our, come in and do a one hour presentation on, um, on diversity or bias and everyone's fixed. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. It, it does. And I, I want to dig more into that because I think, you know, we have, our listeners are kind of split between D&I practitioners um, mm -hmm. and then like multicultural marketing, which, the, you know, the reason I have D&I um, focused uh, companies like MSM Global on is that I think more and more we're starting to realize, um, to your point, right, it's not just about bias training, it's about incorporating a company wide, which means also, for some companies, the consumers you serve, right, you have, mm -hmm. those values have to be reflective. Um, but you mentioned, you know, going beyond bias training, and I think that's what most people think of when they think of DNI. 
Could we dig into a little bit more about what bias training is, why it doesn't work, and then how your approach is different? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not that bias training doesn't work. I think it is often perceived as the the one-stop shop, right? But mm. if, and, and I think that this is, it's also part of the, the challenge that we as DEI practitioners have often experienced. And um, uh, Lily Zhang, who's a prominent DEI practitioner, wrote, wrote about this recently, just sort of the challenges that um, have come with the DEI industrial complex sort of exploding um, with a lot of people entering into the space, coming in without the depth of knowledge and experience of what it takes to really institutionalize this change. And so I think what's easy for us to grasp, what's tactical, what can we put a price tag around? Training, come in and do some training. Let's do some listening sessions, uh, you know, come in and um, help us build a recruitment strategy or develop some, you know, uh, good marketing materials and we'll be on our way. And that's, all of those things can be helpful, but they in by and of themselves are not going to lead to true change. Um, so our approach has really been first and foremost, let's do an assessment and really understand the inner workings of the organization not just in terms of the policies and practices that exist, but how do people feel? And is everyone experiencing the, this, the, the culture of the organization in the same way? Who's having what different experiences and why? And so a lot of our work is qualitative, it's focus groups, it's uh, interviews, um, trying to build a better understanding of where the, the pain points are, and then being able to provide some strategic recommendations back to the organization. Um, and, and to have tough conversations with leaders who more often than not hear the responses from the assessment and are flabbergasted, right? Maybe they had some inkling that things weren't all great, but they often are somewhat caught off guard by how, uh, how, much people are experiencing dissatisfaction or experiencing exclusionary acts or observing them and how that is impacting their ability to feel safe, to be productive on their teams, to feel like they would want to recommend this organization to their friends and colleagues. So I think that's a real wake up call for a lot of leaders that whatever we have been doing to date is not enough. And if we really want to, uh, hire and retain the the top you know the top talent workforce and if we want to connect with and and maintain our our client base our constituents and our reputation then we can't afford not to be focusing on these things um, and then it's really taking a multi-pronged approach not just saying let's have a dei goal um, which normally ends up being again what are the easy numbers we can grasp onto? Okay, we're going to try to increase representation of, you know, uh, underrepresented groups by 10% in the next year. What What's the plan, right? Where are you targeting that? Because a lot of times what happens is we see a, a big influx in terms of um, racial and ethnic, maybe gender diversity at those entry-level positions, but it's not rising up to the, you know, management and leadership team levels. Um, or I can't tell you the number of times I've had conversations with leaders where I say, well, okay, so what's your, you know, you mentioned that you, one of your challenges is recruitment. So what have you been doing? 
and say, well, I reached out to this one HBCU and they never got back to me. <laughs> what else did you do? Um, and I, I, you know, and, I and also like, about what about it. like retention or, or like, right. right. So like, I feel like, okay. I mean, not to diminish that it's hard work to diversify a workforce, but I feel like mm -hmm. that's the easy part. What exactly. do you, what are you doing once they come in? Yeah. And, and are you listening when people are saying this place does not serve me? Um, and I think that's one of the biggest areas that we've uh, really been focusing on, especially now that we're a few years in with some of our clients who have done the low hanging fruit. They did the assessment. They did the foundational training. They've got their councils in place or their affinity groups. They've got a recruitment plan. They have their diversity goals. Great. And then a lot of times what we see a couple years is in is they say, OK, so we're done now, right? Are we good? <laughs> and, you know, it's I'm really I, I would love to be able to say my goal is to work myself out of a job. But I don't think that that's necessarily realistic. And it doesn't mean that the work has to be at the same level of intensity or at the same cost level. But organizations need to realize that this type of change does not happen overnight or even across a couple of years. And when it comes to things like retention, that's so deeply entwined in the organizational culture and how the culture is more often than not set up to create comfort and opportunity for people who have been a part of the dominant identity groups for generations. Um, and so asking, you know, thinking about inclusion as we're giving you a seat at the table, I find to be very problematic because I don't want, I don't know that I want a seat at your table. Why do we even need a table? <laughs> so I think it's more about shifting our gaze to think about how do we restructure the organization, the culture, the policies and practices so that it works fully for everyone. And that's not a zero sum. It doesn't mean that we're taking away from anybody, but it's more so about looking at, gosh, our, our organizational culture is only working for one percentage of the population. And if we continue to try to recruit people who are not representative of that percentage of the population, we have to change the culture. Otherwise, they're not going to, this doesn't work for them. It's not going to work for anybody. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I think it's really um, resonates with me coming from a marketing perspective. Similarly, right, we get companies that want to reach multicultural consumers. Mm -hmm. And to your point, they're, they're thinking about tactics, right? So you're talking yeah. about the bias training. For us, it's like, let's translate it into Spanish. Let's hire diverse actors. And it's like, well, just because you put that out there doesn't mean consumers are going to necessarily resonate with their brand. You have to do the work. Um, yeah. and, and one, one thing that's stood out to me about your approach and your website is like, um, I think we clearly both agree it's the right thing to do to diversify your workforce and make it more, um, open to just open period. Right. Um, but there is a business, uh, aspect to it too. Right. And, um, mm -hmm. just like there is reaching a wider swath of consumers, um, can you explain, I mean, some of the, the benefits that diversity brings to to organizations from a business perspective? Yeah, absolutely. And there's, I mean, just decades of research on this uh, that shows 
the, the power of having more diversity within the organization, as well as not just representation, right, but also creating organizational environments where everybody is able to be fully engaged and contributing at the, the their fullest extent. Um, so, you know, I mean, from a representation perspective, there's a lot of research that has shown, I think McKinsey and Company is uh, the latest that has in- shown over the last probably decade that overwhelmingly organizations that have higher levels of representation of women and racial and ethnic minorities in management and executive position, uh, positions financially outperform those that do not. What is interesting about this research too is that over time, as McKinsey has done these reports, they've shown that the gaps between the, the organizations that prioritize diversity representation and those that don't, that gap is increasing. So when we think about, you know, and exponentially, so when we think about the future, this is not going away, right? The more that we focus on diversifying um, our, our higher, you know, higher levels where people have the power to make decisions and influence the organization, the more likely you are to have higher levels of financial performance. Um, it has a direct impact on the bottom line. In addition to that, there's research that shows that um, diverse teams People not only who are representing different ethnic or gender identities or age identity, but also people who are bringing diversity of thought, right? I come from a different lens, a different experience. Perhaps my career track has not been the the same as the proverbial norm for this particular industry or profession. That level of diversity uh, makes teams so much more powerful in terms of their ability to solve complex problems, to find innovative solutions, and ultimately to perform higher. And then, of course, from the inclusion and equity perspective, uh, the more that we're providing opportunities for people to have the, the accommodations that they need, and to have the type of work environment that is um, conducive to them, the more likely they are to not only feel a sense of loyalty to the organization, but you're just freeing them and their brain space up to actually do the work rather than constantly be trying to figure out how to juggle whether it's competing demands, whether it is code switching because they're a part of an identity group that has regularly been experiencing prejudice or stereotypes. When we take all of that off the table and we just let people do what they do best, we get better results. So, I mean, overwhelmingly, we see that there is a, a huge business case for DEI to such an extent that most DEI practitioners are like, I'm tired of trying to convince you that diversity, equity, inclusion is important for your bottom line. It is. If you don't believe that, maybe you need to find someplace else to go. Um, but, I, you know, I think reinforcing that and especially to ensure that organizational leaders don't see this as a nice to have, but as an absolute crucial component to their sustainability. No, I, I love that. And everything you said resonates with me. Um, and it's, it's um, it also feels so common sense. I mean, p- part of it is probably the industry I'm in, but you know, diversity of thought, just when it comes to problem solving, you bring mm-hmm. all that 
that different background experience way of thinking like of course you're going to be a more successful business but also i think about it from a consumer perspective to your point about executives being more diverse well they're more they're reflecting the new america that we're in right and so if you're a company that's building products and services for the us when you have people of those backgrounds there of course you're going to be more you're going to you're going to be more successful right because you're 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 thinking about um, those people those groups of people that haven't necessarily been represented at the top yeah absolutely and the buying power when we think about you know whether we're talking about the lgbtq plus community whether we're talking about gen z whether we're talking about uh, you know women i think we you know, even just looking at that one facet uh, yeah um, we've hit 50% um, employment rates for, you know, across genders for the first time in I don't know how many <laughs> decades. And so, you know, w- when we think about the the overall buying power of people who have primarily been marginalized, we're leaving a lot of money on the table if we don't take this into consideration. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw I was reading an article recently. Um, the title was something like this is the women's summer with the success of the Barbie movie and, you know, Mm -hmm. Taylor Swift having the biggest concert ever. And it's like, it's, I don't know, it's kind of, it's just wild to me that now where it's like, yeah, of course, 50% of the population wants to see themselves reflected in the media, right? Like, um, so, but I'm I'm glad it's starting to to gain economic steam. Um, But I guess on another note, I mean, you alluded to it a little bit, um, about the fatigue, um, and I would say, you know, fatigue for, for diversity initiatives. Um, and we're also seeing just like a flat out backlash, right? Some of the um, what's happening, educational perspective in regards to critical race theory. Most recently, the 8A program, the SBA 8A federal program is, is in jeopardy, um, you know, affirmative action, What's your pulse on it? Someone being in the industry, did you see this coming? Um, is it affecting DNI? Tell us your your take on it. Yeah. So I think most of us in the DEI profession saw this coming because this type of reaction and backlash is cyclical and it tends to follow any sort of significant social change movement um, because we're we're uh, we're rattling the cages, right? We're 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 sh- we're trying to shift the t- tectonic plates, and people feel that unsteadiness and that discomfort, and it tends to, you know, that backlash tends to be a natural sort of reaction to this. So I don't think any of us were surprised by even the the uh, the veracity of the backlash, um, and just looking at how again, ideologically polarized we are as a society right now, it's not surprising to me. Um, I think, yes, it definitely does to a certain extent put our efforts in jeopardy when leaders who perhaps don't buy into that backlash, but are guided by their fear of how that backlash may may impact them, not only, you know, in terms of the the organization and the bottom line, but also I think 
we as human beings, we like to be liked. <laughs> and I think that there's there's a, a little bit of a peer pressure element. Sometimes people are afraid to say or do something quote unquote wrong or uh, to, you know, to get clap back from either side. And so there's, I think, a little bit of a paralysis that's happening. Um, I also think that one of the challenges that has, I think, helped this backlash in many ways uh, gain momentum is that we in the DEI space don't necessarily always do a good job of um, making this work digestible for everybody. Uh, ultimately, ideally, everyone should see themselves reflected in this moment, in this movement, in this work. Um, this is not just to uh, fix or help one particular group or subsection of society. This is for all of us. Um, and yet, I think we sometimes fall into the trap of, uh, some of us sometimes fall into the trap of blame and shame. <laughs> Still happens. Um, but I think more so it is uh, there. there's a an expectation that we need to um, push people harder and move faster. And I absolutely agree with that to a point. And I also think that when we, you know, we, we have to acknowledge where people are in terms of their level of exposure and understanding and awareness. Um, I think about it, like I was having a conversation with my, with my eight-year-old about this. She's a really picky eater. And she was like, I, tell me, what, what are you reading about, right? Because I was reading this, this book on inclusion and, and I was telling her and she said, so why do they, what's, it, it's called inclusion nudges, right? And she said, well, what's a nudge? And I said, a nudge is sort of when you try to um, give somebody something small and kind of bite-sized that they can take on. So they become a little bit more comfortable and then take another bite and then another bite, kind of like you and how you don't like to eat most foods. And if I shoved a bunch of, you know, new food on your plate, you would probably say, I'm not going to eat any of this. Um, but if I give you a little bit and say, try it, and you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Maybe you're willing to have a little bit more next time. So it sounds so simplistic, but I think we forget sometimes that, you know, forcing people to try to take on all of this at once is not necessarily going to be conducive to long-term change. So I, it's, I think we, we struggle with that balance sometimes of keeping the, keeping the, the momentum going and not allowing for folks to just revert back to what's comfortable, but at the same time, giving them some space to process and uh, practice and mess up. We got to let our, ourselves mess up, um, say and do something and get some feedback and then grow and move forward and have some, you know, some patience and some grace with each other. No, that's, that's powerful. Um, I mean, it, it makes me optimistic though, that you, um, and the industry saw it coming and it, it's cyclical. So I'm hoping, you know, as, as much momentum we had and the backlash that we, we tend to love, we level out. That's kind of my, my hope. Yeah. And I, I also think, especially as I have conversations with, um, with aspiring DEI practitioners and not just DEI practitioners, but Gen Y and Gen Z in particular overall, 
their level of understanding and um, comfort and exposure to identity differences, it's it's at another level than I think mm. many Gen X and baby boomers can can comprehend. And so for them, they're like, duh, right? Um, right. And, and that's, you know, across the board, not just in urban areas, but, you know, it's the most um, racially, uh, uh, you know. Um, diverse generation. Diverse yeah. generation. There's, you know, over 26% of Gen Z identify as LGBTQ plus. So, um, I think that we'll see a significant continuation and progress um, in in the future as more and more Gen Y and Gen Z folks be, move into leadership positions within their organizations. I, and that's a great segue to my next question. Like, what what are you looking forward to in the next two or three years? I I would imagine that's one thing, right? Gen Z may be moving into are they are they old enough to be moving into leadership positions? They are, right? Um, Starting yeah, to I maybe think, you know, some of the yes, some of the sort of older Gen Z because um, I think it's oh gosh, I'm they're at like twenty one right now, twenty two. Yeah, yeah. So and I think that there's there's more of an expectation on the part of Gen Z to have their voices be heard to be able to provide input and have that input be validated by their supervisors, by their leaders. And um, I think that's there's definitely been ongoing tension and conflict in organizations and their cultures related to that because it's different from what, you know, when we were coming up in the world. But, um, but I think there's so much value to that. So I think as, yeah, definitely as the, you know, as just the the demographics of the workforce continue to change, that's going to, uh, you know, again, there's, we can't turn away from that. Um, I also think and hope that what we see in the coming years is more and more of a, a, a willingness and an ability on the part of leaders to integrate diversity, equity, and inclusion into their overall strategy and way of life so that it's not this extra that's put out in the corner. And, you know, whenever there's a something critical, you know, some crisis happens, we draw it back out and say, oh, we must focus on diversity. But it's just, it's baked into who we are, what we do, how we make decisions. Um, and so I think increasingly uh, the organizations that are kind of at the vanguard of this work that's what they're doing, right? This is just, we, it's our language, our, our policies, our structures, our systems. It has become an unconscious part of who we are and how we operate. Um, and so I'm hoping that more and more organizations as they uh, sort of enter into that space, into that level of development can be seen as best practices and other organizations will take their cues. That's great, yeah. And and let, let's let's end on a positive note because that that that's all um, <laughs> makes me excited about the future as well. And it's great having you on, Maria. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, if people want to find out more about your work and your company and yourself, like, what's the best way to stay connected with you online? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my webs our website is msmglobalconsulting.com. I also have a podcast called Culture Stew, where we 
bring on guests and explore identity and sort of the multifaceted dimensions of diversity, as well as promising practices for, um, you know, addressing equity and inclusion issues in our organizations, our society. And then um, you can find me on, you know, all the socials, Maria Marukian on LinkedIn, Instagram, um, or MSM Global in each of those places as well. Great. Thanks again. And thanks everybody for listening. Thanks to everyone listening in. To get more multicultural insights, check us out at thinknow.com and follow us on social media. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. Final thank you to our producer, Lucas Martinez, who created our intro music and makes our podcast sound great. To email him, reach out to martinez.lucas.a at gmail.com.